right. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. One of the pictures throughout the Old Testament that is a, a, a vivid picture of God's interaction with his people is the image of a vineyard. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 5, you don't have to flip there, but uh, you might write this down, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says this, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out wine vats in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me? What more was there for to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to the vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and I will it shall be devoured, and I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled upon, and I will make it waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and the thorns shall grow up, and I will command the clouds that the rain no more rain upon it. And he speaks of a judgment that will come. Again, the imagery is, is pretty simple. He makes this beautiful vineyard, sets everything up, removes the rocks, fertilizes the ground. The environment is perfect for the vineyard, uh, for the vine to flourish, but it doesn't produce good grapes. It only produces wild grapes. And so because of that, he goes back and he uh, says he's going to destroy the vineyard. And so Jesus picks up this imagery and he uses it to speak of fruit throughout his um, teachings to his people. And so we have in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 33, he shares a parable, one of three parables, the second of three. It says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And his tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But then the tenants saw the son, and they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard. And killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asks those sitting around him, What will he do? When the vineyard comes, what will he do with these tenants? He asks the Pharisees and he asks the religious leaders, What's going on here in the context? Is Jesus has um, come to the temple and this is the final week of Jesus' life and he is uh, the Tuesday before he's going to die on the Friday and he is interacting with. Um, the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of the, the power brokers of the nation of Israel on the temple complex. So we talked about this last week. This is the headquarters of, of the religion of the nation of Israel. And this is the power brokers and the whole nation. The key leaders are in Jerusalem at the temple. And Jesus shows up there. And as you recall, on Monday, he flips some tables um, after the triumphal entry comes in and they celebrate him as the Messiah. Um, 
the people do at least. And uh, then he comes to Temple Mount and he flips over tables and, and chases out the money changers because they were taking advantage of the people. They were jacking up the rates on the trade uh, as people were exchanging to the temple currency from whatever their currency was, and they were selling them uh, different animals for sacrifice that were uh, not pure and spotless, that had blemishes, and they were also raising the price up on, on that for people, taking advantage of people in a variety of different ways. And Jesus sees this. He sees people taking advantage, sees the leaders taking advantage and devouring the people of the nation of Israel, and he is righteously angry. And he flips over a bunch of tables, chases them out. And then he begins a series of conversations with the Pharisees and the, the priests because they're a little upset about that. this. They say, well, what, who gave you the right to come in here and start flipping tables over? You have no authority. None of us, none of the key elders of the nation of Israel, none of us have endorsed your teaching ministry. None of us have endorsed anything you've done. And then you come in here into the temple. It's one thing to be causing problems, you know, up at the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and far north from here. But to come to Jerusalem and to start messing with what we got going on here, who do you think that you are? And so Jesus tells him the first parable. Hey, there's Guy had two sons. The first one, he told him, uh, both of them, he told him some things he wanted to do. The first one said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not obeying you. And so he rebelled against the, son, the, the father. Jesus likens that to being the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Clearly uh, immoral, wrong. They, they might have been born into the nation of Israel. They might be um, Jews by birth. But nonetheless, they had rebelled and they were clearly sinners because of the, the decisions that they had made in their lives and what they were doing with their lives. And then the second group of people was the, uh, the second son in the, in the parable was, he was directing to the, to the Pharisees. These are people who said verbally, yeah, we'll, we'll obey you, Father. We'll do whatever you want. But in their hearts, they chose not to. So the first group says, we're not going to obey. And they disobeyed, but then they came to their senses and they repented of that. And they uh, were restored. The second group, they say outwardly, physically, on the externally, what's visible, yeah, we obey, but their hearts are nonetheless wicked. And Jesus makes it clear, this is you guys. This is you, the religious leaders. You're, you're, the, you're the moralists. You're the legalists. You live by rules and you redeem yourself by the stuff you do, but the reality is, is though you look beautiful on the outside, though you are a whitewashed tomb, you're a very clean-looking tombstone, there's still death underneath the grass. There's still death in the tomb. And, and on the inside, you are wretched and disgusting. You're like a beautiful cup that's just shined up and spectacularly beautiful, but on the inside, it's, it's polluted. It's disgusting. And that's what you are. You look great on the outside. You're, you're the second son. And so he rebukes them in that, and then he comes to this second parable, and, and he, interestingly enough, has a conversation with the leaders, and, and they're very open about who they recognize him to be, and they're very honest. They play right into Jesus' illustration, and unapologetically... Uh, they admit the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 5, that, that prophecy to Isaiah, to the nation of Israel, and they admit what Jesus is laying out for them of their failures and fruitlessness. So the parable of the tenants. So master has a house, plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a tower. And the tenants recognize they're stewards. The tenants come in and they take over the, the property and their job is to run the property. And obviously they're going to they're gonna get paid by that, right? But, but during the season of fruitfulness, when it comes, 
the master sends some of his servants to, to get his cut because it's his property, and the tenants are, are acting as stewards of what belongs to the master, right? Get that image. They're, they're taking and they're using what belongs to the master. They are using it to, to taking care of the vineyard, trying to make it fruitful. He's, he's asking for his cut of what rightfully belongs to him. So tenants are the stewards. And we want to look at a couple things. The tenants' treatment of the servants. Their treatment of the servants. When the season, verse 34, for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the servants, the tenants, took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Obviously, not a very good reception, right? Not a very good reception. How would you like to be that messenger? You know, and so, so what does the master do? Graciously, graciously, again, I would hate to be his servants, but graciously, he sends another wave of servants back to make sure, and he gives them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they misunderstood who the servants were. I'm going to go ahead and let them off the hook, but I, let me make sure that they know who they're dealing with. And so he sends another wave, and you know what they do? They do the same thing to that group. Again, he sends other servants, a second group, more than the first And they did the same thing. So finally, the master decides to send his son. Under the assumption that he thinks, well, surely they'll respect my son. My son will be safe with them. They'll understand that he's my son. They won't touch my son. So the tenant's treatment of son, what do they do do to him? They do the same thing. The the son comes, and and they think even more. They think, you know what? If If we take care of this guy, if we knock him off, then not only... Well, they he stopped sending people, but we will get his inheritance. We'll take what is his. Now, commentators will debate about this, um, whether legally they could do that or it was that legal, was it illegal? <coughs> Can you really take um, the property away just because they killed the servant because the master is still alive, right? And I think it, it, it speaks to the irrationality of sin in our lives. A lot of times when we make a decision to sin, we don't really think through all of the repercussions of those things, right? When we rebel against God, we don't logically think through the trajectory of where this action is going to lead me to another action, to another consequence, to another situation, to another problem, that we're going to find ourselves in, in, in the end. We're not going to win. In the end, we're not going to get the inheritance. I think it was R.G. Lee. He was a famous preacher in Memphis. Um, he had a, a, a little saying he used to say, that the, the devil will give you all the corn you want, and then he'll choke you on the cob. Have you heard that? He'll give you all the corn you can want, but then he's going to choke you on the cob. In the end, he's going to yank the string, and he's going to set the hook, and you're going to be in trouble. And so here they are. They, they, they look at the sun coming. They think, oh, yeah, if we, if we take care of him, we get the whole inheritance, and, and we get it all. It, it'll become ours. And so that's their thought. Again, the servants, uh, he sends his son. They say, thinking that he'll, they'll respect him. And, and here's what happens. Father sends the son. Second point, the tenants recognize the son. This is interesting. It's, it's not that they thought, oh, my goodness, I, I totally thought it was another servant, and so we killed him. But if we had known he was your son, then we wouldn't have killed him. That's not what happens at all. They recognize him to be the son, right? So the father sends the son. The tenants recognize, indeed, this is the son, the rightful heir, and, and then number three, the tenants murder the son. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard 
and they killed him. Interesting picture. The vineyard's the nation of Israel. They take the son. Undoubtedly, they drag him out of the vineyard, and they kill him outside of the vineyard so as to not defile their assumed inheritance and their land. They don't want to mess with the vineyard. They don't want to hurt that. They're going to protect that, but they're not going to protect the one who gave it to them. And so they carry the son out, and they kill him outside of the vineyard. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus is giving them a parable that is confronting their sin, but also prophesying about, um, about what's about to happen in just a couple days. Literally, just a couple days from now, from, from this event, Jesus is going to be taken, even though he's been recognized by the nation, he's been recognized by the leaders, he's been sent by the Son. Clearly, the, the, the Father has sent the Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they're going to take him, and they're going to beat him, and they're going to unjustly try him, drag him out of the city, or actually he will be dragging his cross outside the city, and they will crucify him outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And and Jesus lays this all out for them, vividly what's about to happen to him. So verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Jesus asks. And they said to him, well, he will put them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. The question, what, what will he do? What's the master going to do with the tenants? Well, clearly they say he's going to take these miserable wretches and he's going to submit them to a death, a miserable death, let them out of the vineyard. Let out the vineyard to other tenants. He's going to get some other people that will take it over and will respect it and will give him his fruits that's due to the father, the master. Now, a couple thoughts as we kind of build this and understand what's going on here. I want to take a moment. I want you to just, I hope you're seeing as we're going through the gospel of Matthew, how fruit is a big deal in the faith. Fruit's a big deal. In the faith. And again, this is something that we get messed up a lot because of, again, moralism that's often preached in churches. And the reality is, you, you, if you're fruitless, you ought to be more fruitful. So the Bible says that you're supposed to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all those things. And so if you're not showing those things, you ought to show those things. And if you do show those things, then you're obviously a really good, wonderful, moral, righteous person. And the reality is, is fruit, you, you can't produce fruit by your own physical efforts. It is the natural byproduct of a healthy tree. A tree is known by its fruit. So look throughout uh, the Old Testament, here, I mean, I'm sorry, through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has gone back to this image again and again and again. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the, the John the Baptist is preaching. He tells the religious leaders and the people that are listening to him at the River Jordan, you need to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Chapter 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn brushes and figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear 
bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruits bad. For the tree is known by its fruits. Clearly, fruit is a big deal to Jesus. And it's a big deal to evidencing authentic, legitimate faith. Fruit is the natural produce of a healthy tree. Fruit is the natural byproduct, the natural produce of a healthy tree. Fruit does not make a tree healthy. Fruit doesn't make a tree healthy. It sounds awful simplistic, doesn't it? But it's a really important thought. Fruit doesn't make a tree healthy. Listen, we have a um, reluctantly acquired a crazy, ranging, mad giant puppy uh, that's a year, a little over a year old. And if you'd like him, you can have him. And, uh, and interestingly enough, we had, uh, we planted a garden second year doing a little raised bed, a little garden in our backyard. And, um, we had some tomatoes we planted and tomatoes are, I think anybody can probably grow tomatoes. Tomatoes just grow. They do really good. So we got tomatoes planted and then we have, and I'm not, I like tomato in, in like pizza and spaghetti, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I, I would never just like, just, I'm not a raw tomato guy per se. I mean, I can endure it, but I don't love it. But nonetheless, tomatoes are all right. And then we have some green peppers which uh, and some red peppers, a variety of different peppers, even some green beans. I was excited, to be honest. I was very excited about the peppers. I thought that they would be great to uh, find some ways to grill them or eat them somehow. Anyways, fired up about my peppers. And um, anyway, so I, what we did is we put a barrier around the raised garden. It was a plastic, one of those plastic mesh, you know, green fences. And um, Bear somehow has not respected the boundaries that have been set before him. And multiple times... He has found his way into the garden. We had our, our neighbor came home one day and uh, drove up. Our driveways were kind of next to each other, and, and Bear was just sitting in the middle of the garden, <laughs> you know, just fired up and excited and watching them. And he's just having a spectacular time in the fresh, moist, wonderful dirt, <coughs> having a great time. And, uh, and he's destroyed all the plants. I mean, he's got saplings and little tiny. This is when they were first planted. Uh, I mean, he's got things in his mouth, just different bits and pieces and branches. And so I, I went back into the vineyard and I tried to replant everything. And, um, and I got the tomatoes going, okay, they're doing all right. But the peppers never, uh, we got a couple peppers, but as soon as a pepper starts to grow and it's getting to where I'm seeing it, I'm kind of getting excited. I mean, I think we're like a week out from getting a good pepper. Bear finds his way back into the garden again. And he destroys the pepper. And I'll find a piece of a pepper sitting in the backyard. So I'm thinking about next year, we're just doing a straight bed of jalapenos, okay? We're going to put some hot ones and we're going to end this. And we're going to teach him a lesson. Bear's going to learn. But one of the things that's interesting is, is as, the, uh, as the tomatoes are growing, uh, several times he has um, derooted the tomatoes. And yet they have continued to ripen and to do all right. And so even though the vine literally is dying and is, is brown, the, the, the fruit is there. And, and if you were to look at that, you might be mistaken to say, well, it, obviously it's it's looks very healthy. It's great. I mean, look at the fruit. The fruit's there. Obviously, it's all right. But fruit is not the evidence necessarily of a healthy tree. The trees are unhealthy. And so just because you try to manifest things in your life, the reality is the long-term, the long-term fruitfulness of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is directly contingent upon how rooted you are in the soil that God has provided for you. And if you're not rooted 
in Christ, in his soil, you're not going to have healthy fruit because you're not a healthy tree. Fruit does not make the tree healthy. Fruit does not make the tree healthy, but a healthy tree bears fruit. Fruit is the authentication of legitimate faith. That's one of the reasons why the the book of James exists. James is a very confusing book because you have the gospels and the, the, the epistles of Paul, and they vividly just clearly state salvation is by grace through faith. But then you read the book of James, and it seems kind of unclear because James makes a big deal about fruit. What's the evidence? And so it's almost as if you have to work to get faith and, and fruitfulness. But, but somebody wrote a book, I think it was John MacArthur years ago, Faith Works. And, and, the, and the thought is that legitimate faith produces fruit. Legitimate faith will produce fruit. Authenticates. Fruit is an authentication of the faith. And so the, the second image in this passage that's, that's important for us to latch on to is, in fact, Jesus uses a Hebrew wordplay undoubtedly in these uh, I had a friend when I was a kid in one of my classes named Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami. Learned later, Ben is, is a phrase that refers to son of Ami. And so Ben-Ami, Ben, it means son, and Aben, Aben means stone. And so Jesus refers to the son, but then he later he's going to talk to them about the rejected stone. After he talks about the rejected son, he talks about the rejected stone. In verse 42, Jesus says to them, have you never read In the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous in our eyes. Again, he quotes the Old Testament. Have you not read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the the chief cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Jesus, again, in the, in the, in the apostles, clearly showing this correlation where Jesus is that stone that is referred to in the Old Testament. As it is written, behold, I, lay, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse Seven Again, I would encourage you to write these references down so you can remember these connections. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is a, a cornerstone? Some translations might have capstone in this. The cornerstone, a couple different possibilities. Um, clearly, it's either the foundation stone in the corner of a building that, that everything builds off of the cornerstone. If it's not set right... The rest of the walls and the building is going to not be plumb. It's not going to be straight. It's not going to work. Okay, Things are going to fall down and fall over. The other possibility is a capstone. It could be on the top of the wall. So as if you've built right, it sets the top of the wall and, and everything needs to be lined up against that. The other possibility is it's a, um, a capstone that goes over a doorway. So if you have an arch, you build your arch of all these stones, and then you drop this one wedged rock in the top of that arch. And when that's in place, it holds the whole thing up. And if you pull it out, the whole thing falls down. It's gone. It's the most critical stone in an archway. You've got to have the capstone up there. You've got to have that. So either image you want to pick, it's abundantly clear. The Old Testament is pointing to the fact that 
that Jesus is going to be the foundation and the most important part of this whole thing. Everything flows from him. Everything's built off of him. And so what was a stumbling block for the Jews in the nation of Israel? What was a stumbling block for the Jews in the nation of Israel has become the foundation of the church. It's vital to grasp this. They they saw the Messiah as part of God's plan for rescuing Israel. This is how the Jews saw it. They saw Jesus as part of the plan. He's a stone. He's an important stone. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to set us free. But in the end, their story was all about Jerusalem and their power and their kingdom and their city and their nation. And the Messiah was going to come deliver them so that they can set their world can be set back right. And Jesus never came to fix your world. You understand that? Jesus didn't come to fix your world. He didn't come to fix your situation. He didn't come to fix. He came to be the foundation for our faith, the foundation for our lives, the foundation for everything we do and who we are. He is the one that we set our identity from. Everything builds off of Christ. He's the capstone. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of who we are. The reality is that Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, were part of God's plan in revealing the Messiah, who is the plan and is the story. Jesus is the plan. Jesus is the story. Therefore, verse 43, it says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. Because of these things, the people of uh, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you, religious leaders. It's going to be given to a group of people who are producing its fruit. Again, Scripture makes it real vivid who uh, he's talking about as he, as he begins to build this uh, concept of the church. And, and understand, it's not to say that Israel is not important in God's plan. God's not done with the nation of Israel. Okay? A lot of people want to say, they want to say that he's done with them. He drew the line in the sand. They're, they're in the past. There has been. No, God in his gracious affections has chosen the nation of Israel to be a center point in his, his plan in which he is ultimately the center of. They're going to be a, a pivotal part of God's plan. But because of their fruitlessness, he has laid them aside and he is creating what is ultimately his foundation. The cornerstone is going to be built into this thing called the church, which is not just the nation of Israel, but it is Gentiles and non-Jewish people from all over the world, different tribes, different tongues, different nations. That's us are going to be part of this thing that God is building. And one day he's going to come back to Jerusalem and he's going, to, he's going to redeem his original people, the nation of Israel. He's going to come back and fulfill some of the promises he had made them to them before. So he's not completely done with them. But understand, from this point on, he's building a new building. It's a completely different building. And it's the church. The church. A couple of things I want to give you as a conclusion, just to chew on these things, then we're done. Three questions. What have you done with the life and resources that you have been entrusted with? What have you done with the life resources you have been entrusted with? In other words, God has given you a vineyard of sorts. And this isn't a direct, clear, this isn't the main point of the passage, but I think it's a a worthy point for us to consider. Even when we look at all that God has physically provided for us as a church, okay? What are we going to do with the resources he's given for us as a church? Okay, are we going to are we going to obsess with it, worship them, focus on them, be all about them? No, I don't, I don't think so. We, we can't. 
do that. What are you doing with the resources he's entrusted you with as an individual, with your family, the relationship network you have, the stuff you have, the things you have, the, the, the place you work, the people that live down the street with you. He has placed you in a place, and he has given you everything you need. He sent his spirit to empower you, okay, to be his, his missionaries, his light. And so, so what are you doing with everything he's given you? Because if there's no fruit in your life, it's not the fault of the master. He's given you wonderful soil. He's sent his spirit to empower you. He's given you everything you need. So, so what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? The second question, and this might help you answer the first. What is your foundation? What is the foundation in your life? What are you, what are you building on? What are you building on? Are you like the Jewish leaders? Is your foundation self-preservation? Is it the, the desire to preserve yourself and your story and your stability and your hope and your world that you've constructed and your, your security? And I'm, I'm going to protect and I'm going uh, to guard all that I have and I don't want anything to touch it. And so when, when things start kind of a wheel falls off here or something breaks there, or whatever, where's your security? Where's your identity? And, and what is your foundation? When things start to shake in your life, you, you really quickly you find what your foundation is. But what are you building on? Is it your self-preservation? Is it your self-exaltation? Is it, is it self? Or are you building upon Christ? And lastly, is Jesus your stumbling block or is Jesus your foundation? Is Jesus your stumbling block or is Jesus your foundation? Does the thought of Jesus being the center of your life and not you does this thought of Jesus being the center of your life and not you cause you to stumble a bit, or is it your foundation? When you start examining your life and you say, okay, so you're telling me that I am not the center of the universe. It's not me in the world revolving around me because I'm pretty sure that's how things are in my life, in my marriage, in my family and with my kids and my work and my whatever. That's the way all of us kind of by default, we think of everything like that. We're in the center and everything revolves around us. So you're, what you're telling me is I'm not the center. Jesus is, is the center. Not only is he my foundation, but he's supposed to be the center. He's, he's the point. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what the point is. So you have two responses to that. Either you're going to stumble over the stumbling block and you're going to be broken and you're going to come to an end of yourself, an end of your self-preservation, an end of living for your vain glory, an end of trying to play it safe, an end of trying to control everything in your life so nothing breaks and everything's perfect and everybody's in the right place, an end of all of that, manipulating the world around you, an end of all that. You stumble over Christ because he's the foundation stone and you land in repentance and brokenness. And because of that, you can now be rebuilt. Or that stumbling block is going to be the stone that will crush you. Literally, when they found uh, people in sin, for whatever reason, there, there was in the Old Testament, there was given a, a capital punishment was prescribed for those um, in certain sins, and they would stone them to death. James, shortly after this, is going to be martyred, be the first uh, martyr in the, in the early church. And they're going to stone him there. They're going to throw rocks upon his head and his body. And there was a big stone that took two men to carry that they called the heart crusher. And when a guy was, was stoned, if he wasn't dead yet, they would drop this stone on him, and that would end it. 
that would end the heart crusher. And, and, and clearly, looking at some different writings in the Talmud, kind of Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, and looking at some different things, clearly, I, I think that's the imagery Jesus is trying to build up for us. Either you can stumble in repentance and submit your lives to Christ now, or one day, that stone that could be the foundation of your life, the foundation of your hope, the foundation of your joy is going to be the stone that will crush your heart and crush your life in judgment. Better to repent than to fall into the judgment of that stone. That, that's the imagery he's giving. There was, there was a wealthy man who had a son who he loved dearly, and they had kind of a hobby together. They would um, collect d- different pieces of art, and they, they had some of the the one of the greatest, most rare collections of art that uh, anybody had known of. I mean, they had some Picasso and some Raphael, and they had a variety of different, just all of the greats, a little sampling of all the greats, just incredible art. And, and eventually, the son had to go off to war. And so this father and son who had made it as a hobby, this very wealthy man, his empire, uh, he had all of this art collected, and his son had to go off to war, and he goes off to fight in battle. And while he's away, one of his close uh, friends, one of his guys he had fought with, had, had been injured, and he went out to rescue him. And in rescue him, he took a fatal bullet and was shot in the heart. And, and he died saving his friend. He died saving his friend. Now, what was interesting about this friend is, is he also was a little bit into art himself. And, and so at some point... Along the way, he had painted a picture of the wealthy man's son. And, and one day, several years after the son had died and the, the, the father had, had grieved and continued to grieve, he got a knock on the door. There was a man he'd never met before, and he said, I, you don't know me, but I, I, uh, I was a friend of your son. In fact, your son, is he died saving me. He died saving me, and, um, and they embraced and kind of shared the story and talked about his final days and his life and what a, what a noble, what a uh, glorious, great, faithful friend he was and how courageous he was in his final days and, 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 in, and in battle. And he said, one thing, and, and it might not be worth anything to you, but just felt like you should be the one to have it. I painted a picture of him. I felt like you should have it. And he looked at this picture, and this guy was not an expert artist by any means, but he had just, there was something just beautiful about this painting that he had vividly been able to capture kind of the the smile of his son and the the twinkle in his eye and just the, just the just a beautiful picture of that just encompassed he was able to see his personality and the way he had painted this picture and it was so prized to the wealthy art owner that he took it and he removed whatever he had over his mantle and he placed this painting of his son this amateur painting of his son over his mantle well years go by and the the man dies and the, the art world was in a buzz because everybody was fired up to be able to get their hands on this painting. Everybody wanted, they ever thought, man, or not that painting, but the, to get their hands on some, some Picasso and some Raphael and what other uh, different beautiful, amazing paintings that were in this guy's collection. Some, many people had not even seen all of the art that was in there. And so they had an auction. The auctioneer gets up there and he, he says, okay, guys, it's start, time to start the bidding. Um, and he puts the first picture up on the easel, and it's the picture of his son. And he says, all right, who, who wants this picture? Well, clearly people can look at it, and they, they knew, you know, that clearly this is the painter painting of some amateur 
painter. This is nothing of value and of worth. And so they, they just sat there, and people are getting frustrated, and they're squirming their seats. And Can we get on with the bidding? Uh, let's start it at 100. Do I hear 100? Do I hear 200? 100. Anybody want to start it? And nobody said anything, and people started to get real frustrated. And one guy in the back speaks up, you know, would you just move on to the stuff that really matters? Would you move on to the wealthy people? Would you move on to the Picassos? Would you move? And people just were just belligerent. And eventually, a man in the back that was a yard guy taking care of the grounds of their home for years, and he, he loved the sun. He would play with the sun outside. He just he knew him. And he said, you know, I, sir, I, I don't have a lot of money, but I, I could give you $10 for that painting. I can give you $10. That's, that's all I have. Um, but I, I, would, I would be honored to have it. I love the sun, and I would love to have that memory of him and to keep that safe. And he says, all right. $10. Do I hear 20? Do I have 20? $20. And somebody, finally, just give it to him for $10. All right, all right, sold for $10. Well, the guy begins to pack up his stuff, and he closes everything up and um, gets the painting down, and, and clearly the auction was over, and everybody was confused. What's going on? Why Why is he stopped the auction? Why is he not continuing this? What's going on? And he said, I'm, so, I'm really sorry. I was uh, called to conduct this auction, and I was told there was a secret stipulation in the will. And I wasn't allowed to reveal this stipulation at that time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. And whoever bought the painting would inherit the entire estate, including the paintings. The man who gets the sun gets it all. If Jesus is not your foundation, if Jesus isn't your capstone, if Jesus isn't your vine, you got nothing. You have nothing Nothing of value. But if he's your foundation, you have everything. 